Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Boy, the emails keep coming out and Tony Fauci looks more and more culpable with each batch of emails that are disclosed. Uh, the recent set, this goes back to the topic du jour of the last 10 days, which is the lab leak, right? The Department of Energy coming out with a report based on new intelligence. We believe that it was that COVID originated from the lab leak in Wuhan, and this unleashed a fury of recriminations and no intel consensus cover statements by the big guy and his flax, John Kirby, Jake Sullivan, Jake from the State Department. More emails suggest something. Uh, there's a wrinkle here. This is uh, not completely new, but this wrinkle is worth zeroing in on. And the wrinkle is this, that the report that Fauci used to substantiate his claim that top virologists say this uh, virus was animal to human transmission and not a lab leak. He pretended not to know who those authors were, the authors of the study that he then used as a cudgel, even though emails indicate he and Francis Collins effectively submit, uh, uh, commissioned the study. A group of highly qualified evolutionary evolutionary virologists, Fauci said, this is April of 2020, published a piece in Nature Medicine that showed the coronavirus had mutations that were, quote, totally consistent with the jump of species from an animal to a human. Fauci told the White House press corps at the time, the paper will be available. I don't have the authors right now but we can make it available to you. I don't have the authors right now. One of the paper's authors, Dr. Christian Anderson, said Fauci and Collins were two of several big scientific names who, quote, prompted, unquote, him to write the study to debunk the lab, lung, lab leak theory. This, according to a cover email submitted with the article to Nature Medicine, the journal where it was published, in February. So remember the timeline here. And, and Marty McCarry, Dr. Marty McCarry, testified to this last week at the uh, House Select Committee, before the House Select Committee on Coronavirus. He said, so the virologists initially went to Fauci in January and said, lab leak. Then they changed their story and said, animal to human transmission. 
they cooked up this study. This is in February. Again, this cover email that's been unearthed that was sent to Nature Medicine by Christian Anderson, who describes being prompted by Collins and Fauci to conduct this study and have it published. And then two months later, Fauci is before the D.C. press corps saying, yeah, yeah, there's a study by two top virologists that say consistent with animal to human transmission. I don't, I don't I can't remember their names. Let me get back to you on that. But we will make the paper available to provide professional separation to give the appearance that this was done independently rather than decidedly dependently. Now, uh, is any of this criminal? Too soon to say. Uh, does it matter at this point with this regime in place? No, not really. Um, you think Merrick Garland is going to approve any charges, even if you can make a case out against Fauci? He's going to approve any charges that a uh, U.S. attorney would contemplate uh, filing against Fauci? No, of course not. So it, that's sort of a moot point. But the truth is never moot, particularly when we don't have all of it. And we still don't have all of it which is why uh, Jim Comer, chairman of the House Oversight Committee, has said uh, Tony Fauci will be back, but we got a lot of people to interview first. He was on with Harris Faulkner yesterday. Take a listen. We identified 40 employees, lower-level employees, that had some type of knowledge of what mm-hmm. was going on the, in that Wuhan lab and told them we wanted them to come in for interviews. We also uh, identified a long time ago, before we ever flipped the house, that that phone call happened and all of Dr. Fauci's early pandemic advisor said, well, this is obviously a lab leak because, you know, that's what we're doing at the Wuhan lab. We're researching COVID viruses. So obviously, if it started in Wuhan, China, it started at the lab. But then Dr. Fauci had a conference call. And from that point on, uh, they never emailed again. And they they just basically uh, went along with everything Dr. Fauci said in saying that this was a, a, a conspiracy theory. Now, remember, those same scientists, as Newt Gingrich pointed out, we're getting grant dollars from government agencies that Dr. Fauci oh, and Dr. Wow. Collins had a lot to do with. So uh, this isn't over just because the government has admitted that uh, COVID originated in the Wuhan lab. We need to hold people accountable for potential cover-ups. We need to hold people accountable for doing mad science-type projects. We need to make hmm. sure there are no other projects like this happening around the world and stop this from happening in the future. And uh, that would include when it comes to mad science or weird science. Unfortunately, it didn't produce Kelly LeBrock. It produced a virus. Uh, Jim Comer includes Fauci explicitly. Even though Dr. Fauci denied that early on, he denied that we were doing gain-of-function research, and he denied that tax dollars were being used in this. Both statements are not true. That's why Dr. Hmm. Fauci needs to be brought in front of these committees under oath once we've interviewed all these lower-level employees and gathered all the information And then he has a lot of explaining to do. And then we can decide what actions need to be taken. So um, we have a lot more fact finding to do and to do so in public or at least um, to effort to do so in public and for public disclosure, as Jim Comer was saying. He's got a lot on his plate. He's got to track down. Uh, all the uh, the uh, uh, suspicious activity reports for Hunter Biden and his uh, far-flung global dealings on behalf of the big guy. He's got to get uh, Fauci and all these underlings at uh, CDC, NIH, NIAID to uh, put together all the puzzle pieces to what transpired, particularly in the early months of the pandemic, before it was clear to the nation that we 
were experiencing one. Uh, interestingly, too, over the weekend, I take note of a bit of a course correction from one of the more ardent proponents. Maybe I wouldn't quite call him a COVIDian, but certainly one of the more ardent proponents of some of the silly uh, uh, mediations as well as the vax mandates. And that's former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who, again, on the board of Pfizer. But with respect to the lab leak, here was his perspective, which might be a little surprising to you. You know, we're still stuck on the debate about whether it was or wasn't a lab leak. I don't think we're going to prove that. I think we should work on the assumption that there's a probability that it was a lab leak and start putting in place the kinds of protections that we need. The congressman talked about gain-of-function research. He made the point that there isn't a real commercial prerogative for doing that kind of research. I agree with him. We ought to look at whether we outlaw that kind of research. And certainly, if it's going to take place, conduct it in BSL-4 labs, high-security labs under very strict conditions where we know what's going on, and don't outsource it to labs in China. Sometimes the highest risk experiments get outsourced to the worst labs around the world because they're the ones willing to do those experiments. And so if we're going to do high risk research because we think it's important from a national security standpoint, and that's the only context in which this would make sense, there really isn't a commercial context in which this would make sense, uh, we need to get better control over it. Well, that's uh, interesting. Let's let's start from the probability that it is a lab leak. I find that interesting, that concession effectively from Gottlieb. Uh, number one. Number two, uh, he didn't quite concede that Fauci had f- financed gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Virology Lab, something that Fauci has vehemently denied, and that includes under oath. And you heard uh, Comer basically saying, well, that's not true. Um, again, don't expect a perjury prosecution forthcoming anytime soon, but it's important to understand who said what and what the evidence shows. Um, But Gottlieb going further to say, yeah, well, maybe we should talk about gain-of-function research and maybe we should rein in what, essentially this is what he's saying, what NIH is uh, allowed to spend taxpayers' dollars on when it comes to particular uh, types of research that involve significant risk. So even if you don't get what we all want, which is real accountability, real reckoning for Tony Fauci, other than his public reputation, which is not nothing. Uh, If we advance uh, reforms, if you will, that rein in NIH, then that's not nothing either. It's not everything I want, and I'm sure it's not everything a lot of people want who are understandably miffed at being Uh, pathologically lied to over the last three years and ridiculed in the process. But um, but we are seeing some progress with respect to the fact finding and the fact and the conversation that that fact finding is is driving. And that's that's something that's something long way to go. But that's something. Uh, One other Covidian note before we uh, leave this topic and hit the news. I I just got it. Jacinda Ardern, the former prime minister of New Zealand, was one of those high-flying COVIDians. She was uh, New Zealand's Andy Cuomo uh, celebrity, and, and she, put, she was putting New Zealand on the map because she was such a hardline lockdowner. And then uh, she decided that she would step down as PM because the worm had turned in New Zealand. And now, again, we need to document the fallout from lockdown policies.
and New Zealand was one of the worst offenders. New Zealand has recorded the largest increase in the number of registered deaths since the 1918 influenza pandemic. The births and deaths figures for the year ending December of 22 show there were uh, show a 10% increase, 10.4% to be exact, 10.4% increase in deaths over 2021. This increase attributed to COVID-19 and an aging population is the biggest year-on-year jump since the spike in deaths following the 1918 flu pandemic. How how, how those lockdowns go? <laughs> how those lockdowns go? And and just so you, in case you have forgotten who Jacinda Ardern was, because she has a lot of Western analogs, American analogs, Chicago and Illinois analogs. This is Jacinda Ardern on the vaxxed versus the unvaxxed. So you basically see it. this is going to be like, well, it's almost like uh, you probably don't see it like this, the two different classes of people. If you're vaccinated or if you're unvaccinated, you have all these rights. If you are vaccinated. That is what it is. So, yep. Yep. Yeah, that's what it is. Two classes of people in New Zealand, the vax and the unvax. That's exactly what it is. Jacinda Ardern on the sole source of truth. Tony Fauci is science. Jacinda Ardern is truth. You can also trust the Director General of Health and the Ministry of Health. For that information, do feel free to visit at any time to clarify any rumour you may hear, covid19.govt.nz. Otherwise, dismiss anything else. We will continue to be your single source of truth. We will continue to be your single source of truth. Big Jacinda in New Zealand until she became very small Jacinda and then out of office Jacinda. Coming up on Chicago's Morning Answer. A uh, school board out in Phoenix decouples from uh, local Christian university because that Christian university doesn't represent their values. 538. But now into the newsroom we go. Here is Mike Scott. 37 degrees at 533. Bond set at $20 million for a 17-year-old charged with murdering his girlfriend and two other people during a domestic-related home invasion in Bolingbrook over the weekend. Brian Montgomery is charged in the killings of Cartez Daniels, 17-year-old Samaya Tillman, and Sani Daniels. Upon arrival, officers discovered two adults and two juveniles had been shot. Officers immediately provided first aid to the victims. That's Bolingbroke Chief Mike Rampa. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin this morning has made an unannounced visit to Baghdad just days before the 20th anniversary of the U.S.-led invasion that ousted Saddam Hussein. Japan's space agency has intentionally destroyed an H-3 rocket moments after launch this morning because the ignition for the second stage failed. No damage or injuries are reported. Rescuers are searching for 42 missing after landslides hit villages on an island in Indonesia's remote Natuna Regency. Federal Reserve Chairman of Jerome Powell will appear before Congress today, facing down questions on Capitol Hill about whether the continued rise in interest rates is working to bring down inflation. Parts of California dealing with record-breaking amounts of snowfall. More than 17 inches hit the Sierra Nevada mountains in recent days, bringing the total to roughly 16 feet in the last two weeks. 
Madeira County Sheriff Tyson Pogue. We have road crews out there working all night, all day. We have about 350 miles of roadway that we're trying to keep uh, clear. It's pretty dangerous out there. With over 48 feet of snow recorded so far, it's the area's snowiest season in 10 years. The Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris is set to reopen to visitors in December of 2024, more than five years after a fire nearly destroyed the iconic church. A pregnant woman here in Chicago is dead after being shot during a robbery attempt on the northwest side. Genesis Escobar entered a vehicle and announced a robbery yesterday in the 5200 block of West Montana. Gunfire was exchanged in the Belmont Cragen neighborhood. Escobar suffered multiple gunshot wounds and was pronounced dead at the scene. Both candidates looking to become the next mayor of Chicago, touting minor endorsements yesterday. Retiring Alderman Roderick Sawyer chose to endorse former CPS CEO Paul Vallis. Vallis's opponent, Brandon Johnson, received the backing of U.S. Representative Danny Davis. Indiana University this morning will plant a statue of John Mellencamp. School's president announcing they will commission a sculpture of the musician and Hoosier native who lives nearby. The school will also be receiving an archived collection of items pertaining to John Mellencamp's life in music. Mellencamp is donating the entire collection. Alex Stalock stopped 35 shots. Blackhawks a 5-0 shutout win over Ottawa last night. Spring baseball, Cubs over the Mariners, and the White Sox battle the Brew Crew today. The news, a service of Dan and Amy 24-7. Around the clock all day, every day. Listen now, DanandAmy247.com. A check of traffic and weather on the way next on AM560. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. First with Sebastian Gorka today at three, right before Sean Thompson at four on AM five sixty. The answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Well, the big guy was uh, in Selma over the weekend on the Edmund Pettus Bridge, and so was Brandon Johnson, by the way. Uh huh. And offering uh, both of them, all of them, offering their same Jim Crow redux on voting rights, on AP African-American history courses, the the really noxious, lowbrow race hustle that is the want of a political hack like the big guy. But will it ever go away? I mean, it's constant. And so where lies the real source of 
dare I say, hate in this country, ignorance, intolerance. Hmm. Well, maybe it's the Washington Elementary School District, which serves students in the Phoenix and Glendale areas. Washington Elementary School District. The elementary school district in uh, this area of Arizona had an ongoing contract with Arizona Christian University for uh, past five years, which enabled their student teachers to be placed in its schools, the university schools. I mean, the university's teachers into Washington Elementary School District schools for, you know, practical experience. Um, for field experience, right. And then this op- opened up opportunities for recruitment and hiring by the school district from those who were uh, desirous of being a teacher once they graduated from Arizona Christian. Well, uh, late last month at a board meeting, oh, school boards, they're important. Hmm. Uh, the question of the ongoing relationship between this elementary school district and Arizona Christian University was raised by one school board member named Tamilia Valenzuela. And here is what Tamilia Valenzuela had to say in questioning whether or not the relationship between the school district and Arizona Christian University should continue. It is really difficult to teach in this economy. My concerns, though, are our values. And if this institution is value aligned with Washington Elementary School District. And going directly from their website, okay, I'm going to start with our values first. Our vision in Washington Elementary School District is committed to achieving excellence for every child, every day, every opportunity every child when i go to arizona christian university's website and i'm taking this directly from their website above all else be committed to jesus christ accomplishing his will and advancing his kingdom on earth as in heaven part of their values is Influence, engage, and transform the culture with truth by promoting the biblically informed values that are foundational to Western civilization, including the centrality of family, traditional sexual morality, and lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. I want to know how bringing people from an institution that is ingrained in their values that will very directly, one, impact three of your board members who are a part of the LGBTQ community. We have added our pronouns at the dais as a solidarity, as a, a solidarity to let our LGBT community know that we stand in making sure that they feel protected. Are we only performing performative solidarity or are we going to dig deep and actually look at the partnerships that we're doing? 
that above all else, it is to influence people to be biblically minded. How does that hold space for people of other faiths? How does that hold space for our members of the LGBT community? How does that hold space for people who think differently and do not have the same beliefs? At some point, we need to get real with ourselves and take a look at who we're making legal contracts with and the message that that is sending to our community. So uh, the school board moved to summarily cut ties with Arizona Christian University. They made the right call, of course, because there was no space available for non-Christians if they maintained that relationship with Aurora, Aurora Christian, I mean, Arizona Christian University, right? 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 646-360, turnkey.pro text line. Right call by the school board? Keep in mind that this woman, Tamalia Venezuela, or Valenzuela. Valenzuela, she, like she, Fernando Valenzuela. Okay. She yeah. is on cat ears while she's making this comment to the school in front of everybody. You will address her with a meow? Meow. I mean, literally, there you go. Mm-hmm. how can you take this person seriously? I don't know what's more ridiculous, uh, her commentary or her cat ears. It's a close call. That's on your, that's, you that's, your, lo- that's your school board in, in Phoenix and Glendale. Phoenix. Glendale, Arizona. Right. And you wonder you wonder why Arizona is purple trending blue. She's an embarrassment. Any questions about the importance of school boards? <laughs> I mean, I, I, mean, and I the say this. woman is wearing cat ears, folks. I mean, I say that. And, and, and green hair. And their real world implications, because, by the way, she was not a mob of one. She was a mob of a majority that cut ties with uh, Arizona Christian University after her speechifying because you know we have three members and i'm i assume she's one of them uh that are members of the lgbtq community but the substance of her argument how does this leave space because aurora christian university has a value statement and a faith that is not shared by talalia valenzuela doesn't leave space for anybody right frank at the board of trade yeah, I'm wondering how she lines up on the premise of the warm and gentle embrace of the rectum. <laughs> Thanks for the call, Frank. He's, I think he's talking about butt babies. Oh, yeah. And yeah, they come right. in three colors, by the way. Of course they do. Um, she oh. identifies herself as bilingual, disabled, neurodivergent, queer, black, Latina. Mm-hmm. Who Boy. loves a good hot wing. Check, uh, <laughs> I'm sure she does. It looks like she does. Uh, checks a lot of boxes there, especially the hot wings Woo. box. Didn't see that coming. Wow. Um, but the, 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 where does this leave space? If a public school district has a relationship with a private Christian university where uh, students that are interested in going into the teaching profession can get field experience and then like p- potentially, be, potentially be hired – how does that leave space for people who are not Christian? How does it leave space for people who don't believe in traditional marriage? How does that leave space for people that don't believe there are more than two sexes, right? It doesn't leave space because there's disagreement. That's her argument. Is that right? I mean, there is a teacher shortage out there and recruiting problem, and she's worried about that. 
they've had this relationship for years. It's a great place for them to, you know, get their their, their student aids or teacher aids, excuse me, and it helps them launch their careers. Well, let me ask it another way. Uh, how does what Talila Valenzuela did and the school board did, how does that leave space for Christians within the school district? Exactly. Let me uh, put it another way. Uh, these questions I don't believe were raised. Real surprise. School boards are important. Um, so you have to share identitarian beliefs with somebody in order to be their teacher or their student. So then I, I so then if I was a student at a Catholic high school like I was, if we had a Jewish teacher, we couldn't have a Jewish teacher. We can't hire Jews because we have some religious differences. Is that is that the path you want to go down? We have different faiths. Like we couldn't hire a Muslim teacher because we have different faiths. There's there's no common humanity if you don't agree with the identitarians, identitarian politics. That's what they're arguing. So de facto, the position that school board, Washington Elementary School Board in Phoenix has taken is we shall not hire Christian teachers. And I assume Orthodox Jewish teachers and uh, Muslim teachers, because on the scores that Ms. Valenzuela was decrying, well, there is shared views. You know, there's an interfaith alliance on, on some of those matters, isn't there? So that's the road you want to go down. Don't leave space for people of faith who are serious about their faith and the dictates of their faith. And you don't want to stop at faith because she didn't. LGBTQ, that has, I mean, that there's a faith component to it, but it's, it doesn't necessarily need to be. You can be secular, you can be an agnostic or an atheist and still not buy into 73 genders. So agnostics and atheists who don't buy into 73 genders, are they also prohibited from being employed by Washington Elementary School District in Phoenix? You want to go down that road as a country? Because that's the road we're going down. Jim in Warrenville. Good morning. Uh, don't they have a curriculum in the in the school? And I would think that the 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 gauge uh, for the quality of a teacher is their ability to uh, implement the curriculum. And I, you know, I agree with what you said. If, if they're a Muslim or they're a, a reform uh, reform Jew or a Christian. That shouldn't matter because what we're dealing with is the curriculum, and therefore that's the only thing that should be the gauge. Are they able to uh, adequately uh, instruct the uh, the students in the uh, the basics of of the curriculum that the the school has to offer their students? Thanks for the call, Jim. Well, there's a tell here, right? This this little game of uh, cultural poker we're pa we're playing. There's a tell. You catch or tell, share our values. That's always the right. tell. Yep. Share our values is a euphemism for imposition or uh, mandated agreement as the threshold. So it's so important to her because 
unlike, say, what Jim and Warrenville had to say, what is, how does Miss Valenzuela see the school? She sees the school as an indoctrination camp to transmit her values and whatever she says our values at that school are, because, of course, she talks in the, in the we as if there's no dissent, and maybe there isn't much. I don't know. I don't know the school district. But I know, writ large, there's dissent. Share our values. That's the tell. Uh, we're here to turn your kids into political activists. We're here to transmit our belief systems into your kids. Uh, basic learning, the three R's, uh, competing ideas and belief systems and hashing those out. Getting an understanding of them so we can speak intelligently about them. No. That's not how she sees K-12 through education. She just told you. Another example, I mean, we could do these examples all day, and we're going to continue to in the run-up to the April 4th election here, which isn't just about Chicago mayor, as we started yesterday. It's also about school boards in Chicagoland, and Wisconsin, for that matter. Um, Orlando, and we've got myriad examples you've heard over the years, and we'll refresh your recollection here in Illinois, but Orlando, here's another one. Uh, Here's a student, uh, I mean, excuse me, a teacher, sixth grade teacher named Ethan Hooper, who is uh, protesting Ron DeSantis and his state board of education's approach to curriculum, which is that we're going to have a substantive one rooted in sort of traditional Western education, small L liberal arts education. We're not uh, setting these schools up to be political activist training centers. So uh, Mr. Hooper enlisted his sixth grade students to do skits mocking DeSantis and Florida Republicans by extension. So when you hear what you're about to hear, this is, these are videos he posted on TikTok. Of course he did. That involved his sixth grade students, and the idea is, right, that this projection of the left, that it is conservatives like Ron DeSantis who are the book burners, not them. It is conservatives like Ron DeSantis who will not tolerate dissent like them. And the evidence suggests what? I'm about to run up on these kids and start banning these books right away. Hey, 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 what y'all reading? What y'all reading? Harry Potter? You reading Harry Potter? Oh, witchcraft. Gotta go. Gotta go. Hey, hey, hey. A black a black boy? No, absolutely not. What you reading? The hate you give? I'm gonna give you something to hate. This book's gone. Say goodbye. What you reading? What you reading? You wonder? I wonder how you feel once this book is gone. Say goodbye. What you reading? What in the, what in the, gotta go. Gotta go, class act. What is this class act? I'll show you a class act. This book, say goodbye. Say goodbye. And it goes on from there. He's not particularly funny or skilled. Um, the uh, little sketch comedy he did could have been a lot better, but it's the point is about enlisting his students to participate in his political activism. Because that's what schools are there for. In Orlando, in Phoenix, in Chicagoland. 
Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630, or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, SignatureBank.Bank, member FDIC, Equal housing lender. Signature Bank. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. We have the COVID emails. We've got the Twitter files. Now we have the Tucker tapes. Ooh. Uh, yesterday night and tonight, Tucker Carlson, who obtained uh, footage of the J6 riots from Kevin McCarthy, much to the hue and cry of Capitol Hill Marxists. Uh, yesterday night and tonight will... Uh, did and will present a total of five stories addressing some of the more salacious charges and narratives advanced by the J6 Star Chamber and those Capitol Hill Marxists that have tried to implant in the mind of Americans that this was an organized insurrection instigated by President Trump and cops were killed and uh There were dangerous people that were within a stone's throw of taking over our government. And there were uh, tough talking Republican members of Congress like Josh Howley, who were running like frightened little girls. Yep, That was the story. And don't forget, I mean, President Biden even said, you know, last or two months ago that four people died that day. (laughs) So they're 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 keeping this lie going. Of course they are. Sicknick being one of them, which we know he did not die on that day from that. He had a, he had a brain aneurysm he and had a stroke. stroke. Yeah. He had a stroke. The, um, you know, like with uh, COVID, like with Twitter, the truth is the last to arrive fashionably late, and so it is here. Tucker Carlson's narration of the Sicknick video that he posted, and, you know, and by the way, uh, good for people, uh, much criticized. Good for people like our friend Julie Kelly at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, for persisting on the call for all of the videotape to be released because we need full context here. We shouldn't just trust whatever one uh, party in our government is feeding us. 
Let's see it all. We can make our own judgments. Let's see it all. Let's see the full context. And you want to play a snippet and say that this means that? Well, then provide the full context so we can see if that actually holds up to scrutiny. Yeah, God bless her. She has owned this story. Uh, Tucker Carlson's narration of the Brian Sicknick video, uh, seeing Officer Sicknick in the Capitol, helmet on. The facts of his life matter, including how he died. To this day, media accounts describe Sicknick as someone who was, quote, slain on January 6th. The video we reviewed proves that is a lie. Here is surveillance footage of Sicknick walking in the Capitol after he was supposedly murdered by the mob outside. By all appearances, Sicknick is healthy and vigorous. He's wearing a helmet, so it's hard to imagine he was killed by a head injury. Whatever happened to Brian Sicknick was very obviously not the result of violence he suffered at the entrance to the Capitol. This tape overturns the single most powerful and politically useful lie the Democrats have told us about January 6th. And here's the thing. Um, This is, I mean, from the beginning, this is not to justify anyone who broke the law or anyone who engaged in violence. Yeah, or got in tussles with police officers. None of that is justified, and people should be prosecuted. Um, They should be prosecuted with all due speed. They shouldn't sit in an undisclosed location for four years. Uh, Or I guess we're at three years now, but you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, Two years. 21 two years two years but but anyway the idea is is sitting there for uh years without being charged when you're talking about relatively straightforward obstruction and uh, vandalism uh public disturbance type charges for most uh the response from the sicknick family who unfortunately has become political and you know you, you don't i don't want to spend a lot of time uh pillaring them i mean people grieve how they grieve and you just have to give them space but what they're saying is unfair the signic family's outrage at the ongoing attack on our family by the unscrupulous and outright sleazy so-called news network of fox news who will do the bidding of trump or any of his sycophant followers no matter what damage is done to the families of the fallen the officers who put their lives on the line and all who suffered on jan 6 due to the lies started by trump and spread by sleaze-slinging outlets like Fox. And they go on to criticize Tucker Carlson specifically and, um, uh, you know, uh, characterize what they see on video. They they write the family statement. On video, Officer Sicknick looks like he managed to shake off the chemical irritants and resume his duties. That he did, but his sense of duty... An incredible work ethic were the driving force which sent him back in spite of injuries and no doubt contributed to his succumbing to his injuries the following day. He doesn't look injured at all in this video. By the way, the chemical irritants, I mean, this was... spray or something? No, this was released last week. Time-lapse video of the west side of the Capitol where on January 6th at about 2.30 p.m. Eastern Standard... Uh, the crowds move past police lines. A minute before they move past the police lines, body cam footage shows a cop shooting a tear gas canister into police lines. What that did is cause the police to retreat for air, mm-hmm. 
and then the crowd advanced past where the police line had been set up. In other words, they had a perimeter secure. There was a police line that was not breached until the cop misfired this tear gas canister and police dispersed, and then the crowd advanced. So much for your insurrection. Uh-huh. That's sick, Nick. How about QAnon Shaman? The QAnon Shaman, who's sort of the face of the quote-unquote insurrection, the face of January 6th, because, of course, his ridiculous costume. Right. So it provides the perfect opportunity for the left to say everybody there on January 6th was some lunatic, uh, rabble-rouser, insurrectionist, threat to our democracy, so on and so forth. Look at these people. This is who uh, represents the Trump supporter. This is the quintessential Trump supporter, the QAnon shaman. Uh, and what you see from the video that Tucker Carlson released is not just that however he got into the Capitol, he was being ushered around by a police officer, too. There was, people were milling about. Um, there was no effort to arrest him. And he was unarmed, except for, you know, the helmet with the horns he was wearing. And at one point, as you'll hear from Tucker's narration, uh, he's walking with a couple of police officers, I assume Capitol Police, and they walk past another group of like seven officers. So if there's like, well, you know, they were trying to de-escalate, that's sort of the narrative. They're trying to de-escalate and didn't want to, to get into a confrontation. He was literally, there was a QAnon shaman and about nine officers at one point. I'm watching so it right you, now. It was like nine on one. They you could have, have taken him, him into custody at any point in time. If you were so concerned that he was about to assume control of the federal government. Ridiculous. Jacob Chansley became the face of January 6th, a dangerous conspiracy theorist dressed in outlandish costume who led the violent insurrection to overthrow American democracy. For these crimes, Chansley was sentenced to nearly four years in prison, far more time than many violent criminals now receive. What did Jacob Chansley do to receive this punishment? To this day, there is dispute over how Chansley got into the Capitol building. But according to our review of the internal surveillance video, it is very clear what happened once he got inside. Virtually every moment of his time inside the Capitol was caught on tape. The tapes show that Capitol Police never stopped Jacob Chansley. They helped him. They acted as his tour guides. Here's video of Chansley in the Senate chamber. Capitol Police officers take him to multiple entrances and even try to open locked doors for him. We counted at least nine officers who were within touching distance of unarmed Jacob Chansley. Not one of them even tried to slow him down. Chansley understood that Capitol Police were his allies. Video shows him giving thanks for them in a prayer on the floor of the Senate. Watch. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for paying the inspiration needed to these police officers. Contrast the reality of what Jacob Chansley did in the Capitol building on January 6th, the indisputable facts recorded on video, some of which has never before been seen, with the depiction of Jacob Chansley that you've seen in the media for more than two years. Yeah, and by the way, the QAnon shaman was a former Navy enlisted who um, 
didn't quite cut it in the Navy, but he was also diagnosed with basically mental illness uh, per upon uh, or predating his discharge. And, and and now he's sitting in a federal pen doing three and a half years for trespassing. Yeah. Three one two six four two five six zero zero is our turnkey dot pro answer line. You could also reach us on our text line at six four six three six. Type in DA, then a quick comment. Uh then the famous uh, Josh Howley fleeing video. Yes, let's talk about that. Uh Josh Howley fleeing the chamber and um this was used by the uh j6 star chamber uh to uh you know look at this these cowards oh they're saying it was no big deal and look at their running josh holly running from the capitol and uh and the assembled uh, seals in the audience there to prop up the uh, or to, to try to create the uh, impression of legitimacy for the star chamber, you know, dutifully laughing along. Well, that was cooked footage, too. Listen to Tucker Carlson explain. And the committee wasn't accusing Republican office holders of planning riots on January 6th. It was accusing them of running away from those riots like cowards. In the case of Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, the committee and their allies accused him of both. Josh Hawley is a To prove that Josh Hawley was a coward, the committee released video of him loping out of the building on the afternoon of January 6th with a police escort. The tape became a staple on social media. Democrats laughed with derision. Later that day, Senator Hawley fled. After those protesters he helped to rile up stormed the Capitol. See for yourself. <laughs> But in fact, the surveillance footage we reviewed shows that famous clip was a sham, edited deceptively by the January 6th committee. The clip was propaganda, not evidence. The actual videotape shows that Hawley was one of many lawmakers being ushered out of the building by Capitol Hill police officers. And in fact, Hawley was at the back of the pack. The coward tape was a lie, one of many from the January 6th committee. One of many, one of many. Yeah, one of many. One of many. Uh, and uh, so what has been the response? Well, you could anticipate the response from the left, of course. You can anticipate it. You've actually been hearing it ever since the news broke that McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, had provided access to the tapes to Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson's a Russian agent. Tucker Carlson is a threat to our democracy. Tucker Carlson is endangering the members of Congress give you an example. Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, always good for hysterics. Joining me now is Senator oh, wait, Chris... Wait, before I play that, I have to make the point. Jason Johnson, who's one of these fungible MSNBC hosts, mm-hmm. and he's some half-assed jur- associate journalism professor at Morgan State University, listen to this dipstick set up the prompt for Chris Murphy to also demonstrate his dipstickery. Joining me now is Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat of Connecticut. Senator Chris Murphy, thank you so much for joining me tonight. I, I will start with this. This is, this is how this looks to me. 41,000 hours of footage from an attempted coup 
is federal evidence. If I have local evidence from my local police department, heck, my neighborhood watch, I'm not giving it to a local blogger. So how on earth is Kevin McCarthy trying to justify the fellow members of Congress giving 41,000 hours of federal investigative evidence and material to Fox News? Explain, explain this to me like I'm seven, because I, I don't know what he could be saying to his colleagues to make this make sense. Well, obviously, I can't explain this on any rational terms. Uh, we are very concerned about this footage being turned over to Fox News, in part because uh, it may compromise the safety of our building. I mean, what's next? Or, uh, is the Speaker of the House going to turn over the daily schedules of the Capitol Police? Uh, are they going to give them the codes to the uh, to, to the locked doors? Um, there's a point at which um, you're really putting in jeopardy the safety of the people who work every single day in the Capitol. Uh, talk to me like I'm seven. Well, Jason Johnson, that's the only way to talk to Jason Johnson. Like he's seven. Oh, really? Um, uh, local evidence from a neighborhood watch or from police? You mean stuff that's a matter of public record that you can FOIA? Jason Johnson, I thought you were a journalism professor. The idiocy that you're dealing with here and the corruption, intellectual corruption, for starters. As to Chris Murphy, yeah, very concerned about safety. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, because uh, the report is that Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Alexandra, who's a documentarian, was given access to the same footage to make a documentary. I'm sure her take will be different, probably mirror the J6 Star Chambers take. So is that is that something that's dangerous, too, for the democracy, or is okay because it's Pelosi's daughter? Uh-huh. Number two, um, the J6 Star Chamber shown uh, footage of Vice President Pence and Josh Hawley being evacuated, plus scenes from inside McCarthy's McCarthy's office as his staffers prepared to flee. So there's no security concerns there about showing the inside uh, layout of parts of the Capitol. No concern if it's Pence and Hawley and the J6 Star Chamber doing it. No concern if it's Alexandra Pelosi getting access to J6 tapes. It's only concern when it's coming from Tucker Carlson or somebody not of their ilk, right? Oh, and by the way, a Carlson, Tucker, that is, uh, had the footage, I understand from the reporting, the footage that he's using uh, in these stories uh, last night and tonight vetted by the House before it aired. But, but okay, Chris, sure. Right, what's he going to do next? Give the codes to... Uh, secret compartments in the Capitol building. The left is afraid of the American people, and uh, maybe they should be, and I don't mean in a January 6th kind of way, and I don't mean because of January 6th. I mean because they are inveterate liars who spread division with misinformation and paper it over with the most scurrilous caricatures and falsehoods about their constituents, at least some of them. Bob in Buffalo Grove. 
Uh, good morning, uh, Amy and Dan. Thanks for uh, taking my call and airing the subject. I watched all of it last night on Tucker. I just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And this thing proves we've been lied to by um, the congressional 1-6 six, uh, hearing. I'd love to hear somebody interview um, Schiff, Kinzinger, Cheney, Raskin, the whole bunch of them to explain why they didn't look into this. And then also the fake news media who hid all this stuff from us. And, and now into the future, how are they going to spin this when you have all this video uh, showing what they told us was wrong? Well, thanks for the call. But I'll tell you how they're going to spin it. You mentioned Jamie Raskin the detestable Dem Socialist from Maryland. Carlson is pro-Putin, and this is out of Putin's playbook. Oh, Verbatim what he said. Really? That's how they do it. You uh, disagree. You're going to challenge the story we've concocted. You're a Russian asset. Got a text message. The left treats the American people like we are seven years old. Chuck Delavan. Hey, how you doing? Um, I think that they should take and facial recognition. They threw all them guys in jail on January the 6th. They should facial recognition the riots in Kenosha and the riots in Minneapolis and L.A., and those guys are the core of the Antifa, and I'll guarantee you they were the ones that attacked the Capitol dressed in Trump clothes, and that's what they should do. Uh, thanks, thanks for the call, Chuck. Matt, South Bend. Yeah, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Obviously, the truth doesn't matter for the government that's in, uh, in power right now. And it's, it's just so a shameful, hurtful feeling to all of America, hopefully, that they change this narrative and we get past this. It's, it's not serve and protect. It's uh, to earn and deflect. It just seems like a, a, a just a travesty. Yeah. Thanks Thank for the call, Matt. I mean, I don't trust the government. This is just another, you know, nail in the coffin. But what about that pipe bomb, remember, that was at the DNC headquarters? Anybody find out who did that? Mm-hmm. Or was that just more lies? Yeah, they got the same team that's uh, trying to find the leaker of the Dobbs decision is on the pipe bomb case. Grant in Rockford. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. They, they, the Constitution means nothing. Uh, the Second Amendment, nothing. They want to trample it. First Amendment, nothing. The speedy trial, nothing. They've rigged the election. The ballots don't do anything. Um, I, I don't know where, you, where, where we draw the line, Dan. They should be afraid. Eventually, it, it's not going to be ballots. It's going to be bullets. Thanks for the call, Grant. Uh, it's, uh, you know... It's not surprising, but it's but it is demoralizing, and maybe that's the point too. Just to 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 demoralize, to get people to throw up their hands. I mean, we've seen that in Chicago and Illinois, where uh, one side is going to tear asunder the foundations of civil society, and the other side is more or less going to uh, offer some gentle pushback and stand by while it happens because as matt from south bend said it's all about earn and deflect not serve and protect uh we'll see we'll see what republicans are made of obviously uh, i applaud kevin mccarthy for getting these tapes to a media outlet that could um, provide the proper airing of them and uh and now 
have the conversation be joined with actual evidence, since this is the sort of thing that was spiked by the J6 Star Chamber. And I hope, I do hope, I, let's see. I, I can't wait to hear from Adam Kinzinger and these moralizing uh, simpletons uh, uh, the response to what was aired yesterday. And and the, the response to what is ongoing with respect to the adjudication of criminal cases uh, that involve people that were there and allegedly committed crimes on January 6th. A lot more to talk about, but uh, this is a start, and Tucker will have more tomorrow, uh, more tonight for us to talk about tomorrow as well. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. The uh, big guy putting together the best and brightest in his administration. I mean, you've seen it in action. P. Butt as Secretary of Transportation, for example. You're doing a heck of a job, huh? Heck of a job, P. Butt. Uh, meet um, his nominee to be FAA administrator. Oh, no. Uh, his name is uh, Philip Washington. What pronouns does he use? Don't know. Don't know that. I'm not sure if he's uh, down with that or not. Okay. But um, he's not down with knowing much about, you know, flying. Planes? Yeah, planes, flying, piloting. Uh, here is uh, a back and forth during his confirmation hearing with North Carolina Senator Ted Budd. So Mr. Washington, can you quickly tell me uh, what airspace requires an ADSB transponder? Not sure I can answer that question right now. That's, that's okay, we'll just keep going. So um, that's, a, that's a pretty important part. So what are the six types of special use airspace that protect this national security that appear on FAA charts? Uh, sorry, Senator, I cannot answer that question. Okay. So what are the operational limitations of a pilot flying under basic med? Senator, I'm not a pilot, so... Uh, but uh, obviously you'd ever see the F Federal Aviation Administration. So um, any, any idea what those uh, restrictions are under basic med, quickly? Uh, well, some of the restrictions, I think, would be high blood pressure. Uh, some of them would be... It's more like how many passengers per airplane, how many pounds okay. in different categories, and uh, what ele what uh, altitude uh, you can fly under. So, and uh, and then uh, amount of knots. It's under 250 knots. So, okay. it's not having have anything to do with blood pressure. So, can you tell me what causes an aircraft to spin or to stall? Uh, again, Senator, I'm not a pilot. Um, okay, uh, let's keep going. What are the three aircraft certifications the FAA requires as part of the manufacturing process? Quickly, please. Three aircraft certifications. Uh, again, uh, what I would say to that is that one of my first priorities would be to fully implement that Certification Act uh, and report You know the three types, uh, Mr. Washington? The, the three no. types? Okay. Yeah, that's type certificate, production certificate, and airworthiness certificate. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Let's just keep going, see if we can um, um, get lucky here. So can you tell me what the minimum separation distance is for landing and departing airliners during the daytime, Mr. Washington? I, I don't want to guess on that, Senator. Are you familiar with the difference between Part 107 and Part 44809 when it comes to unmanned aerial standards? Unmanned aerial 
unmanned like drones? Are you familiar with yes, the difference? Yes, yes. Okay, you know the difference between those two, part 44809 and part 107? Do you know the difference there? No, I cannot uh, okay. spell that out. I mean, basic questions about aviation policy, and he couldn't answer one of them. Well, what is three, going on there? Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Dot Pro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey Dot Pro text line. The cacosocracy that we live in, and again in Illinois, we know all about this. We're being governed by our lessers, not our betters. Um, you know, some of these people say, "Well, it's a gotcha question." These are gotcha questions. He's not a pilot; he's an administrator. He would be an administrator, not. Uh, somebody that's making policy specific to the industry. He doesn't need granular knowledge in order to be an effective executive and so on and so forth. Yeah, you do. Um, well, do you know what job he holds now? I have no idea. He's the CEO of Denver International Airport. <laughs> Remind me not to fly into DIA anytime soon. Um uh, if that's the what's the yeah I don't know what the I, no, I, I don't know what the TV. call letters are but anyway um yeah yeah um he probably doesn't know what the call letters are either not now some of these you know so I, I um uh, have done some piloting and so some of these things some of like you know what causes a stall this is that's really basic but I mean it's okay, like you, you it's like you know nothing about anything related to Aviation, and you would think with you know close calls and discussions about airline safety and well, certain things like that. We just had two United planes touch clip wings with each other at Boston Logan yesterday. Well, yeah, right. I mean, th- things like that just just go on in the industry. I mean, the uh, ADSB uh, transponder uh, that uh, he was asked about. Um, yeah, that that is uh, Ted Bud said. Well, it's sort of important. Yeah, this is automatic dependent surveillance. Um, that is uh, mandated through a number of countries' airspace, including the United States, um, because it provides enhancement for traffic management in a di- uh, above and beyond the traditional transponder. I mean, I don't know all the particulars, and I'm not p- pretending I'm some aviation ace either because I'm not. But there are some basic things that if you were in the industry at all, if you had any affinity for what you were doing, you know, like as the CEO of a major international airport – that you would have some basic understanding of this that you could communicate. And to the extent you didn't, that you maybe would brush up on some of these particulars, uh, understanding of the airspace, the different designation, the different designated airspaces that he was asked about prior to a confirmation hearing. But I guess he didn't anticipate that occurring. I, I mean, um, That's embarrassing. Yeah, you know, when you, when you train, like a, as a student pilot, just on the stall thing, yeah. when you, part of getting prepared to do the check ride for the FAA to get your pilot's license, even for just visual flight rules, you know, then you go get your instrument rating after that. You, you go, you induce stalls because you need to practice stalling and recovering from a stall for safety purposes. So, you know, you pitch up to stall the engine out and then it, you descend and then you go through your checklist to... Uh, restart the engine and get back into your flight path. So it, it, it's just, the, I mean, so so I just I just wanted to address the oh well I don't know any of that. Who knows any of that? Well, the the people that should know something about this are people who are CEOs of international airports and people that are being uh, uh, advanced to say be the FAA's top person. 
That's what we, uh, but this is, and, and by the way, I mean, I have to say it because this is, uh, I think, an example of identitarian politics, too, that Mr. Washington is a minority. And you know how focused the left is on making sure the cabinet and executive positions, quote unquote, look like American and so on and so forth. And I'm not saying he's not qualified for the job, but I am saying that was not an impressive performance. That was not somebody prepared for a Senate confirmation hearing to be the FAA administrator. And as we're talking, I mean, you know, and we're talking about Peabot, somebody else whose knowledge of transportation begins and ends with his love of airports because that's where he met his his well, partner. I, I mean, it's engaged, whatever it's this is ridiculous. And also, it turns out to be somewhat dangerous. To have incompetence in these posts. Now, of course, there's the technology and there's built in administrative bureaucracy and not to mention the industry and their incentives to be safe uh, and operate safely because you don't want to operate an unsafe business. It, it tends to repel customers. But but still, it just doesn't inspire any confidence in government. And and it, maybe it's certain maybe it shouldn't. Clay and Wheeling are in Chicago's morning answer. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, I come Oh, hold on, Clay. We hold on, Clay. Clay. Yep. Yep. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. Good morning, Danny. Uh, I grew up on an airstrip uh, since about fourth grade. A private airstrip. Uh, I come from a family of pilots. My my twenty year old sister is a pilot and a flight instructor, teaching guys three times her age how to fly planes. She could answer these basic questions. She is a five foot six blonde girl, twenty years old, and she can answer these questions. If she's not doing anything, maybe would she like to be the FAA administrator? You know what? I think she qualifies as a minority. Do females still qualify as minorities now or for this whole uh, administration? You know what? I'm going to toss her her, uh, hat in the ring on this because this is scary. And if you have any real pilot about this, if watching this interview, and they will be terrified. And you know what? This isn't even about a minority thing because I know minorities in – in the aviation community, you, you sure, tell me you course. couldn't pluck one out. This, I, yeah, I, I know air traffic controllers at O'Hare that are that are a minority. They're great guys that know way more than this. So this is this is terrifying, and I think it's a deliberate attempt to sabotage the FAA, just like we've seen with the railroad industry and almost every other thing. So thanks, thanks for the call, Clay. And, and what is Peabot worried about? Parents not having to pay extra to sit next to their children on a flight. Hey, it's Secretary Pete, and if you have kids, you're going to want to hear this. Every parent knows that it can be so stressful flying with children, and sometimes airlines aren't making it any easier. As recently as a month ago, not one U.S. airline guaranteed that a parent and child could be seated next to each other without potentially having to pay extra, an unnecessary cost that effectively punishes families for wanting to travel together. We have been pushing airlines to... I have been flying with my children for eight since they were born. And that is the most ridiculous. No one's going to want to sit next to your kids except for you. Paying extra. Well, he's got a lot on his plate. He's also worried about uh, white construction workers doing uh, projects in minority neighborhoods. Um, So there's a lot on his plate. And he's Uh, worried about that? What are you talking about? We, he was talking about that last week. White const- instead of being in East no, Palestine, no. he was prattling on about white construction workers in minority neighborhoods that don't look like the neighborhoods in which they're working. Uh, we, we made the point that he, it was ironic since the construction worker in the village people was his favorite character. 
so a uh, text from 312, by the way. Yep. It's like an, uh, an FDA commissioner not knowing anything about biochemistry or the head of mine safety not knowing anything about how to buttress a mine as you dig. Exactly. I, you don't need to necessarily be a practitioner, so he doesn't necessarily need to be a pilot. He can be a, you know, a CEO, an accomplished executive. But, I mean, to not know a seemingly much about the industry in which you are an executive, that is odd. You don't have to be a pilot. I'll concede the point. You don't have to know the the idiosyncrasies. But when it comes to, like, major aspects of our aviation system, uh, designated airspace and uh, the safety mechanisms that are so instrumental in traffic uh, flow management, yeah, you'd think you'd know a little bit about that. You'd think you'd take a little bit of an interest in that. I can't believe this guy's the CEO of Denver International Airport, to be honest with you. Corey and Woodlawn. Yeah, that's the startling part. Morning, Dan, morning. And the gentleman is supposed to be a CEO of the Denver Airport. I mean, uh, uh, Airbase. But I yeah. did want to say that the 107 part uh, A is for drones. And in Chicago, we have to do those to put those drones in the air. I'm talking about for uh, personal use. So he should have at least known that because that's what they're telling people not to fly near the planes. Yeah, right, exactly. Thanks for the call, Corey. Um yeah, right. Well that that right, that the that was the, the last question that you heard Ted Butt ask him and right, that, that becomes I mean, we just had the the spy balloon business and and he's just like he's sort he's indifferent to knowledge about uh other aircraft that are not commercial or private uh planes. I it's a it's a little stunning, I think. Scott and Aurora. Dan, since you're not going to say it, can I say it? This sure. guy's not qualified. Thank you, and have a nice day. Okay. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> uh, he proved himself he's not qualified. You, you, some of these nominees and these confirmation hearings, I mean, you just cannot believe it. There's another one that I we can't get to now. I, I hope we'll get it? to because this is a second bite at the apple. And this is Josh Howley. Uh, trying to get uh, answers out of Colleen Shogan, who is Biden's nominee to be the National Archivist. And you say, well, who cares about the National Archivist? Well, I would normally say that, too, except when the National Archivist is conspiring with the FBI and the DOJ to raid the home of a former president. Now the National Archivist becomes somewhat of an important position. And we played Colleen Shogan first go around back in August. You need to hear a second go around uh, again because it just is is more emblematic of the sort of senior leadership cabinet level type uh, executives that you have in the big guys administration. Pete and Elburn, you're in Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, uh, I was wondering if this is the same government that won't let my kid ride next to me on the way to the airport. (laughs) But once I get there now, he gets to ride next to me. I'm confused. (laughs) Uh, safety first, Pete. Uh, safety first. They just come up with uh, bromides and marketing campaigns. They really don't know anything about these uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, apparently. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. The stories you need to know to start your day. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM 560, The Answer.
Top of the morning, Dan and Amy, former Indiana governor and now former Purdue University president. Uh, a little bit more than a decade ago, uh, I and many others wanted Mitch Daniels to be president, but it wasn't a Purdue, something a little bit bigger than a Big Ten university. Oh, I remember. Um, but uh, he has now stepped down, at, as he announced last year he would, at the end of last year, which he did. Um, and he's had a very interesting and varied career, uh, obviously as governor, as in the, in the academy, as a university president. Also, not as many people know, he had a, a good run at Eli Lilly as a corporate executive. So maybe we'll talk to him a little bit about his career in pharma, too, after the last three years of COVID. Uh, and uh, more recently, as we discussed on the show, he was considering a run for Senate with Mike Braun vacating his Senate seat to run for governor to replace Eric Holcomb, who's term limited, uh, the open Senate seat. And Jim Banks, congressman, is running. And there was a lot of talk that Mitch Daniels was going to run. But at the end of the day, he decided not to. Uh, so let's start there with Mitch Daniels. Thanks so much for joining us again. Great to have you. Hi, Dan. Um, so, you know, the decision you made, I, I read your statement, and um, it was interesting. You said, it's not the office for me, and also it's not the town for me. Um, so the calculus of your decision not to run for Senate. In the end, it wasn't a hard call. I had never really fancied myself in legislative office. I've been lucky enough to hold what I would call action jobs all along, whether it was business or as governor, and then, of course, the years at Purdue. But a lot of people I admired and respect said, you really ought to do this. The country has problems. You're worried about them, too, aren't you? And uh, so I went and had a look. But uh, no, Dan, uh, I don't know any shorter way to say it. It's not, it's a talking job. It, it, right now, as we can see, it's difficult for people, any one person, to get something meaningful done. Mm -hmm. And uh, out uh, in that in that uh, venue, and uh, uh, and yes, as a matter I, I not a fan of Washington, D.C. and the culture there. And so uh, um, I had I scouted it out, but uh, didn't see anything that told me that this was the right way to use the next really eight years of uh, might be my last eight useful years. So are you going to like open a bait and tackle shop or what, what's next for you? <laughs> yeah, that sounds appealing. Uh, uh, well, I've got the. Uh, uh, I haven't settled on it and probably won't on another 24 seven job a, a couple came around but i didn't think they were the right thing i've got there's some causes i'm uh, already involved in or will be that uh, have to do with uh, freedom individual liberty um and uh, I'm, I'm involved in some businesses and can get a little more deeply involved now so uh, my don't worry my wife will make sure i'm not in the house much but uh, <laughs> it, may, it may be a collection of things as opposed to one all-consuming uh, round-the-clock uh, assignment. So, Mr. Daniels, are you going to be endorsing a candidate in Indiana Senate primary? You know, Amy, um, uh, I, the last 10 years, and you'll recall this, um, uh, it, it, I, out of necessity and respect for the position I had at a public university, uh, I haven't had anything to do or say about partisan politics, and I'm not sure I want to come off of that position. It's been... Um, it's been, in some ways, a comfortable place to be. So uh, I'm not, first of all, I'm not sure who'd be all that interested in what I thought. But secondly, uh, uh, I'll be very careful before I uh, break what I uh, used to call my vow of political celibacy. 
Mm. Um, Talking about Indiana politics, though, a little bit more, um, obviously you see some shuffling going around. Um, and, and, you know, it's a red state and the Republican Party is dominant, but that doesn't mean there's not uh, internal uh, discord. And, um, and, and, you know, there was such um, uh, optimism going into last cycle in Indiana, as well as a lot of other places that didn't quite happen, like uh, the Jennifer Ruth Green against Frank Mervan, the opportunity to do something that hadn't been done in a century in Northwest Indiana. But but um, give us your sense with some of the moving parts and in primaries, things always get a little spicy. But wh- where you think the Indiana Republican Party is and maybe compare and contrast that with where you think the National Party is. First of all, um, it wasn't always thus, <clears throat> you know, that when our team was elected um, in 2004, the other party was dominant and had been for a good long time. So yeah. these things. Yeah, uh, are not, uh, you know, are not uh, foregone conclusions for all time. You, and we were always conscious of the fact you've got to earn it and re-earn it all the time. I hope that's still the mentality of the Indiana Party. I, I know there are people who um, feel that uh, uh, we plateaued a little bit in terms of the kinds of actions that moved Indiana up in rankings of of uh, good government rankings of of uh, you know, fiscal strength and uh, rankings of business attractiveness um, that uh, it's time for another surge forward. And I hope that the candidates who offer themselves will, uh, will chart a way to do that. Do you, do you think the party nationally is in a sort of that is at a plateau or per, perhaps a nadir? I, I don't know. We're somewhere in between. I don't know how to characterize that. I, I've all, I have felt and said that I think that, at, uh, at the state level, and I think Indiana is a really good example of this, um, uh, the politics which has turned off so many people can be um, redeemed in, in many ways it, where uh, you see states acting effectively against their problems. Um, I think that builds confidence, which we've um, sadly uh, uh, lost a lot of uh, in our other institutions. I think that where politics is conducted in a somewhat more civil manner. Um, and I believe Indiana is a pretty good example of that. And I hope it stays that way. So we can't, um, no one state or uh, no uh, one uh, figure can, uh, you know, move us out of a rather, I think, uh, unfortunate situation that we've been in nationally. But I do think states can set really good examples. And I, believe uh, our state has been one and i hope uh, we'll we'll do even more do that even more so uh, this question is not sending you out to pasture in any way here but um but as you look back in your time if you don't run for office again as you look back in your time as governor um and now you've had some some time between you know a, a good 15 years in between where you can think about the the what you did and what um and what really is part of your legacy because it's survived and thrived. I know a lot of people would say, oh, capital formation and business creation and, and making Indiana a magnet for, well, among other places, Chicagoans, um, and, and really turning around that state's economic fortunes. But for me, it's the uh, way you advance the flag for school choice um, and what that meant for K-12 through education going forward, and then previous governors have built upon that. But 
I wonder how you think about your two terms as governor of Indiana and what you're sort of most proud of or what you think will have the, the longest lasting impact. Well, the example you mentioned is certainly uh, up there. Um, it was one of many things we tried to do to give young people in Indiana a better educational head start. Um, and um, uh, I think that it did mark a, a big step forward nationally. And uh, you, I think you can date uh, other um, uh, steps forward in educational freedom uh, from that time. Other states took note and copied it. You know, um, yes, I'm, I always feel good about that. It, the term social justice gets thrown around, I think, awfully loosely. Nobody owns that term. Uh, we all have to debate what justice is. But whatever it is, it has to include the possibility that low-income and poor people and minority uh, parents should have the same right to pick a school for their kids as their rich uh or wealthier neighbors do, as a high percentage of public school teachers do, pick a non-government school. And so enabling them to have the same choice as those more fortunate, uh, you know, is something certainly high on the list of, of positive memories I have. And what was your biggest challenge when you were president of Purdue University? Recruiting Zach Eady. I think... Well, ha- happily, well, uh, go through COVID. happily, uh, there wasn't enough, that much competition for him. I'm sure other schools are kicking themselves. They didn't yeah. see what yeah. what Coach Painter did. Well, I, I guess um, the, the the biggest challenge was to um, maintain and and I think build a an atmosphere and an environment committed to free freedom of thought, freedom of expression. Um, there are a lot of pressures across the political spectrum against this these days, and universities need to be really the, uh, the, the flag carriers, the bastions of, of that. I think Purdue represents that, but it took some work. You know, for instance, um, every uh, Purdue freshman for several years now on arriving at campus for their orientation sessions, one of the first things they hear or take part in is a module on free expression huh. and uh, why it's important and what it means. And, and if you hear speech or ideas that that uh, you disagree with or bother you, what what's the appropriate response and what's not? Um, and so uh, it really wasn't that difficult, but it was a big it was a challenge because so much of the rest of the landscape is lost its bearings on that question. Well, you see it going on at the University of North Carolina right now where they're being threatened by accreditors for opening up uh, an institution of civic learning, which has meant basically free marketplace of ideas of different perspectives on the sailing issues of the day, and they're being threatened with um, with their accreditation. I mean, to just highlight the uh, a more recent example of what you're talking about. There are way too many such examples. Um, uh, North Carolina trustees have, have stepped up, though, in a big way. I've, at least if the things I've heard and read are accurate, uh, more power to them because they um, are trying to move that institution back in the direction of of, of freedom of inquiry. You know, Dan, the, the point that some folks overlook, in addition to all the other reasons that this is uh, – that free speech is the first provision of the first uh, – of the Bill of Rights, is that uh, uh, 
knowledge and the advancement of knowledge is the assignment of higher education, and it only and it stops when there's no when there's con- enforced conformity of thought. Knowledge only advances when differing ideas collide and compete. And so, it's not only unconstitutional; it's not only an infringement of individual freedoms. All of that. It's also a violation or a, an abdication of the fundamental assignment of higher ed, which is to advance knowledge and transmit it to the next generation. Um, I mentioned at the outset uh, your uh, career as an executive with Eli Lilly, and um, I just wonder, and and then having to navigate uh, all things COVID uh, as president of Purdue University, I wonder uh, how you look back on the last three years and and offer an assessment of the the response uh, that was uh, that was that was uh, chosen by the powers that be and the role that big pharma like Pfizer, uh, Moderna uh, played in um, the policy choices that were made. First, I'll say, and I devoted in basically an entire commencement speech to the subject two years ago. I think history will deal very harshly with leadership in, in various sectors of society um, uh, for the. Uh, for its failure to exercise its fundamental responsibility. Leadership in any position of significant responsibility or broad authority is always about choice, choosing among competing priorities. Do I spend the money here or there? Do we uh, add more people here or or, uh, um, uh, in some other uh, area? Which, uh, when you can't do everything at once, which things are the most important to do first? And instead of making those, uh, dealing with that fundamental assignment, uh, people in government, people in education, many people in business and others, uh, put their blinders on, panicked, and committed themselves entirely to one priority, namely nobody's supposed to get this virus ever, even if they are young, healthy people who are not at danger, real danger mm-hmm. of it, for instance. And this... Uh, you know, I think in the in the in the uh, as a consequence, as we've all seen, they wreaked incredible collateral damage on other as other health problems went unattended, as uh, uh, people suffered mental illness, even suicides, uh, up uh, drug use, opioids, all of that. Um, the educational cost to children has now been measured in many many months. Will be very difficult to recover, uh, not to mention all the economic damage they did. So, uh, so, sorry to rattle on, but I just think this is such a fundamental question. I hope we learned something from that. And uh, you know, the next time somebody says uh, we have one goal and one goal only, and everybody go over there and shut up, uh, I hope that there's more pushback. You know, the people who signed the so-called Great Barrington Declaration, scientists were right, proven right, and they were vilified, not just disagreed with, but castigated personally uh, by people in the highest positions of government. And that was was a shameful uh, uh, episode, and let's hope we never repeat it. But you were such a strong leader at that time, because I remember you came on the show and you said, "We, we have to open in the fall. We will be open. And you took measures. Um, Did you get any pushback for that? Yes, of course. And listen, I understood it at the time. There was a lot we didn't know. And that's the whole point I was just trying to make. You you have to make decisions. When you're entrusted 
with a big assignment, like uh, so many of us were, um, you you have to um, make decisions before you know everything you'd love to know. Um, that's what you're paid. That's what you're paid to do. And as I say, to weigh different priorities. And in our case, our priority was, if we possibly could, not to interrupt the education of these young people. And we didn't know if we could make it. And uh, it was touch and go all the way, but uh, and a marvelous collective effort that included the entire Purdue community and every single student, everyone doing his or her part. We did make it, and uh, uh, I wouldn't want to repeat it, but I've always said it was one of the most, uh, you know, ultimately fulfilling experiences that I've ever gotten to go through. He is Mitch Daniels, former president of Purdue University, former governor of Indiana, of course. Mitch Daniels, always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for your time. Appreciate you having me. See you. Bye. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You've made the switch, and it feels so good. You've switched to Chicago's morning answer on AM 560, The Answer. Insert Democrat socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law. For 30 plus years running He's promising this and he's stealing that Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now You can pay off your house here in Illinois But you can never keep up with the taxes Oh, how it's always been the plan To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt not a matter of if anymore, but when you're moving out. I said, when you're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with wirepoints.org's President Ted Dabrowski, who we'll get to in just a moment. I did want to alert people's attention to this. The website is up. What website? The website. Yeah. The African Descent Citizens Reparations Committee website. The ADCRC website. Okay. Mm-hmm. The ADCRC established to bring an equity focus on African-American communities and residents that have been disproportionately impacted by longstanding disinvestment due to direct and systemic repercussions of slavery. What year is it again? Uh, that's uh, uh, ADCRC has been tasked with developing and recommending measures to ensure equity, equality and parity for African-American descendants of slavery. So uh, I don't know if we can do as good as uh, San Fran, where they're talking about uh, $5 million per, but I'm sure our legislators can come up with something. Uh-huh. Reparations. I wonder where the mayoral candidates are on this. Maybe somebody will ask them. Yeah. The uh, chair of the commission... Marvin Slaughter. The commission will take a holistic approach to gain knowledge to inform our task of making recommendations that address disparities present in our community as a result of slavery and its vestiges. More kickback capitalism is coming. But unless you're uh, of the African-American persuasion, that's not for you. Sorry. You get to pay for it, though. That's the good news. Right? In the interest of equity, we're on board for that as a state, aren't we? Don't you think? Why wouldn't we be? More good news. Ted Dabrowski joins us now. Ted, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Yeah. 
Appropriations yeah. Commission. Uh, it's about this. time. We've been we've been behind L.A., yeah. San Francisco, even Evanston, you know, has been leading the way. Finally, the state is acting long overdue. You know, Evanston took, took the lead, and uh, I was just reading about their, their program. They've, they've struggled. They've struggled. They've hardly handed out any money. Uh, it, it, it's, it's daunting, the whole discussion. It's just daunting. But uh, I think it all points back to the problems that we've been talking about for Chicago and, and you know, largely across the country. That this equity equity movement, this white supremacy movement, uh, it's it's gotten so big that it's dominating places like Chicago, and uh, you know I argue, and, and so will many others, that it's 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 the fundamental problem with a place like Chicago. Of course, there's always all kinds of problems, but once once you obsess about about that issue, you drop you drop things like merit, you drop things like even you know even even job creation. You know I, I've been arguing that you can't fix these wealth gaps and all those all those gaps that have been created over time with more handouts. You can't do it with food stamps. You can't do it with Medicaid. You can't do it with reparations. The real way to solve these problems is to have you know more people participating in in, in jobs, you know, and and uh, succeeding but, with uh, with meeting and all that. And, and instead, you know, we're not teaching our kids to read. We, we're doing all these things backwards, and it's just you know it's coming back to bite us really big. But to be fair. To be fair, because this is not this is not really about reparations in isolation. This is about exactly the phrase I use, which I borrowed from Andy Kessler's column in the Journal. This is kickback capitalism, and the honkies did it first. Uh, the government uh, throwing tax money at favored constituents, whether it's sweetheart inside deals for contractors or for largely white trade unions, uh, for a particular real estate developer. All the inside deals, all the carve-outs. I mean, hell, we're just seeing uh, – this is, this is a perfect commentary in Chicago. The two senior-most members of the city council, Ed Burke and Kerry Austin, white Ed Burke, black Kerry Austin, they're both leaving office under indictment. I mean, is there a more perfect commentary than that? So it's, it's cultural because it, they want to make it about race and they want to play this white versus black versus whatever game. And it's not. It's about the kleptocratic political culture that says, um, let's get political power so we can do our carve outs and our special deals and our waivers and favors. And so uh, so honkies do it and blacks do it. The politicians in both camps do it. And so the city continues to suffer under the weight of all of the above, doesn't it? Well, I mean, that, that's 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 true, too. Right. You look at government programs, you look at uh, the carve outs, you look at the, the sweet deals that we gave. You know, we give Sears like a company like Sears, bankrupt Sears. Right. We give them big deals. Uh, you look at all the bailouts we've done. So th- there's a lot of arguments that can be used, you know, like you say, for this, because everybody's getting their deal and, and more so every day. So that's true. But, uh, you know, when you think about something like reparations, it's daunting. It's it's it's, it's impossible to figure out how, how it would work. And, uh, you know, nobody seems to be able to point it, even if it would work at all. So um, the um, uh, matter of the new school, state school superintendent, uh, you uh, wrote about this recently, you and your colleague, John Klingner, uh, this uh, fresh off his success, Tony Saunders at U46, which is the second worst school district in the state, arguably behind uh, of, of significant population behind CPS. Uh, he's the new state school superintendent. And you uh, and your colleague argue that it's going to be more difficult to attract teachers into Illinois classrooms because of Tony Sanders. Well, 
I thought it was because we're not spending enough on K through 12 education. Teachers yeah. don't make enough in Illinois. Yeah, this is kind of going back to the whole equity argument. Anyway, look, you know, there's this whole argument that we need more teachers in Illinois, and 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 the, the reasons why is we don't pay them enough, right? And we, yeah, all that kind of stuff. But when you look at it, you know, you've got all kinds of reasons. We got this new tier two pension. Well, I shouldn't say new. It started in 2010, 2011. It's it's a horrible pension plan for teachers, and it needs to be changed. Uh, that's one. You've got more violence in the classrooms, and you know, you guys have talked about that on your show several times. Uh, it's getting dangerous for, for teachers. Uh, you've got this politicized classroom where, you know, if you're if you're anywhere near conservative, you're going to have a hard time functioning in a school. We've seen that. Uh, but but add to that, who wants to really work in, in a failing system? And, you know, you look at the numbers and you know we've talked about them all the time. You've got a system where one in 10 black kids can read. And that's across the board in, in most schools. Uh, you got a system where you're forced to pass the kids along. It doesn't matter. It, it doesn't matter if they're failing. You've got to pass them. Just be quiet. Don't don't say anything. They graduate them knowing that the kids can't read or do math. Um, it's it's a failed system, and everybody knows it, and everybody's faking it. Everybody just takes the money and moves on. Um, and so, what was fascinating is that Pritzker wants to do a new teacher uh, pipeline plan. Spent seventy million more dollars. Never mind that we already have massive property taxes. And where does he go to push that program? He goes to Elgin with the new superintendent, Tony Sanders. Well, Tony Sanders' record over the last decade, he's been superintendent there, is is worse than the state average. It's far worse. And, you know, that whole one in 10 for blacks, one in 10 for Hispanics in reading, uh, that's exactly under his under his uh, management. That whole promoting kids year after year after year, it doesn't matter what grade you look at uh, for Hispanic students in Elgin, it's one out of 10, uh, no matter what grade, whether it's third grade or 11th grade. And uh, and he graduates all of them. So he's he's running. He's been running a fake system. And now he's going to be the guy to do that at the state level. Who wants to work for that unless you just want to get paid and and not really care about what happens? And don't forget, he's the same monster who locked the five year old in a closet member because he took his mask off. He was one of the original covidians. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and, you know, add to that, of course, that we, we pay the eighth most for education in the country. So. Uh, you know, on a per student basis. So why the heck do we need to put more money into that? Right. It's, it's, it's really the whole system needs to be held accountable. But, you know, in, in the day of equity and all that, uh, it's not going to happen right now. But uh, I tell you, as you've talked about these uh, school board races and all that, you know, this is a moment. It probably won't be the moment. Uh, I still argue we're still four years away from that. But uh, at some point, all this stuff matters. Four years away from what? Uh, a, a, a better chance at an uprising. You know, same, same thing. Why, I say for why, you, why do you think that? Um, you know, I, I think, you know, Lightfoot getting kicked out is a good signal, but Brandon Johnson getting put oh. as, a, as a potential candidate means we're not there yet, right? If it had been Willie Wilson and, and um, Vallis, at least we would have had two potential guys who were trying to, trying to reform things. Um, but, you know, I, I think the, the pendulum swinging, the pendulum's starting to slow down on, on how extreme it's getting, but it's not, slow, it's not stopped yet. It hasn't started to come back. And so while people may want to celebrate your life with being kicked out, it's, it's, we're not there yet. It's, it's, we need more pain and more, and, and sadly, and I don't mean we, I want more pain, but uh, people aren't going to react until they kind of figure this out. And, you know, right now, this, this Tony Sand, Sanders guy, hey, he sounds pretty good. Um, but people don't know the truth about you, what you look at the You look at the headlines about big cities around the country, just to, like you can look at any, any day. So Chicago, what the conversation is, Chicago, it's, you know, it's a break or bust. If you like Brandon Johnson, Chicago's Detroit. That's what people are saying. Um, 
So, yeah, there's existential is the feeling, at least among some, and unfortunately it's only some, to your point, in Chicago. Other headlines around the country. Walmart is done with Portland. Walmart's pulling their last two stores out of Portland because why? Because there's no law. There's no law enforcement there. Um, uh, Peace in the Spectator. Can anyone save Philadelphia? Uh, An update uh, from Atlanta where there was more violence uh, the other day in protestation of uh, police headquarters down there. 23, (laughs) and this is my favorite. This is the best. Including a Southern Poverty Law Center lawyer charged with violence in Atlanta. You know, the Southern Poverty Law Center, the Southern Poverty Law Center that the FBI's field office in Richmond relies on to designate Catholics who attend the Latin Mass as tied to right-wing extremism. Uh, I mean, well, it's really... Uh, two of those 23, one was from France, one was from Canada, no one's from Atlanta. I don't care. It's what's happening in these big cities. Um, and some of it's indigenous and some of it's not. Some of it's roving bands of nomadic... Uh, Marxist doesn't really matter. The result in those cities is the same. The response from the leadership is the same. And uh, and 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 where's the example of a revolt that's occurring? Was there a revolt in New York with Eric Adams? No, not really. It was sort of sort of like eh, uh, the least offensive of the options. Has there been a policy shift in New York? Has there been an attitudinal shift? There's not really any evidence to support that uh, contention at this point. So where in big city America that have where those big cities that have been disintegrating at least since the summer of love and many uh, and for many years prior for most of these cities, it just wasn't so public and obvious because it wasn't so public safety oriented. But the last three years, where is the where is the, the clawback by the civilized? I'm not saying it. Yeah, and, and, and I tell you what's, what's interesting. I haven't seen a whole lot of attention get paid to it, but uh, you know, the alderman, the, the socialist alderman, uh, held the ground. The progressive caucus held its ground in Chicago, uh, maybe, maybe even increased its size. And so uh, it's not like like they're all being kicked out. Now, yeah, maybe the conservatives did a little bit better too, but uh, and, and maybe there should be more tension, which is good. But uh, certainly, uh, the people who've, who've been huge supporters of, of defunding and, and, and more progressive causes in Chicago. You know, they held their ground, at least on, on the uh, city council. So that's not, you know, we're not seeing the sweep. I, if anything, I think Lightfoot just got kicked out because, you know, nobody liked her. Uh, Person- she probably would have away with, with the crime and education, all that, because they yeah. just don't like her. Yeah. Well, her personality. And, and so we shouldn't celebrate too much. Well, right. But but if it, if it was just personality driven, what does that tell you about the underlying views? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah you know, and, 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 and then you got to, you know, then there's a whole other discussion. You know, we have to really think about this because a guy like Vallis is running on strong on crime. But uh, to, to Jeannie's reveille just a few minutes ago, you know, people forget that we could roll back crime to, to 500 murders like we were in 2019 and, and get some kind of normalcy. Right. And, and under under Trump, you know, un, unemployment rates in, in Chicago were pretty low right, for blacks, for everybody. Um, but to go back to 2019, we were already a bankrupt city then. So. Just getting some control of a crime, which we must do. I'm not saying we shouldn't. We 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 must. Um, the fix for for Chicago is so damn deep that you know there's so much more to do on on, on the whole pensions and and you know corporations leaving and people leaving and all that. That uh, we have to remember that it's it's massive reforms that Chicago needs, not just some status quo tweaks or some you know marginal improvements. He is Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints.org. All things Illinois policy related. Ted, thanks as always. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. 
connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. In the uh, earlier in the show, we brought you Philip Washington, Biden's uh, nominee to be FAA administrator, the current CEO of the Denver International Airport, who is not particularly well versed in matters related to aviation. No, not at all. Uh, I wanted to get to Colleen Shogan. This says uh, more than just uh, lack of qualification at the center of it. Colleen Shogan is uh, an academic of sorts, modest one, uh, part of the information bureaucracy in the federal government, adjunct faculty at Georgetown. She's also his nominee, the big guys, that is, Mr. 10 percent nominee to be the national archivist. This is uh, her exchange with Josh Howley. We brought you back in the fall her first go-around in terms of Senate confirmation, um, to refresh your recollection. Republicans tend to exhibit anti-intellectual qualities. Democrats, on the other hand, coalesce on the intellectual tail of the continuum. So is the point that Republicans are stupid and Democrats are intellectual? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Absolutely not. The point of the article is that uh, the presidents that I featured in it have a rhetorical connection with the American people. A rhetorical connection that you say is anti-intellectual, and you you feature every two-term Republican president, going back to Dwight Eisenhower. Yes, Senator. I think it's it's a piece on rhetoric, and it is really looking at how these presidents have been successful rhetorically in their arguments. Uh, interesting. It's a piece on rhetoric, but you attribute part of the anti-intellectualism of the Republican Party to, in your words, the rise of the religious right. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Because so those voters are stupid? Thank you, Senator, for that question. Absolutely not. And if I am confirmed as archivist of the United States, I look forward to welcoming all Americans to the National Archives. So do you think that people who voted for Donald Trump are anti-intellectual? Thank you, Senator. I would not make any judgment on the people who voted for President Trump or any other president. So, oh, so you don't think the people who voted for Dwight Eisenhower or Ronald Reagan or George W. Bush, they weren't anti-intellectual? The anti-intellectual rhetoric just appealed to them because what? What's your theory? Thank you, Senator, for that question. As I said, presidents are able to speak in common sense, plain terms to Americans that they understand. So you characterize President Reagan as having, quote, less than impressive intellectual capacities. You said President Eisenhower and Bush were decidedly intellectual. You said Reagan engaged in intellectual posturing. Let's just start with the first one. Less than impressive intellectual capacities. So in other words, it's dumb. Thank you, Senator. Absolutely not. That was a perception, and it was cited. I'm sorry. It's a perception by whom? By you? You you wrote about it. No, Senator. That was, and as I said, in the article, that is a, a... perception, but actually in the article, because... You say Reagan's less than impressive intellectual capacities have been widely discussed. Mm -hmm. That's presented as a factual statement. Mm -hmm. You don't even cite for it. Mm -hmm. This is on page 298. I have your article. Don't dissemble in front of me. Mm -hmm. So 
Reagan's less than impressive intellectual capacities have been widely discussed. Mm-hmm. You're not saying that he had less than that's not your view. Thank you, Senator. It is not my view. Why did you- and it went on from there. You start to get a feel for it. Well, she was back recently, and so is Josh Howley. And now the issue is her public tweets, which she has blocked, and which senators on the Judiciary Committee, like Howley, would like to see. He actually has some of them, but she won't disclose them. And they speak to more to her particular perspectives on things. This is how the most recent exchange between the two in the Senate went. I, in particular, asked you to give us a full accounting of the public posts that you had made on Twitter. You had locked your Twitter account before you came before this committee. It had been previously been public. I asked you to provide the, the public posts that had previously been available on Twitter because the ones that we have were pretty disturbing. You responded as follows, and I quote, My personal Twitter account is comprised of posts about my mystery novels, events at the White House Historical Association, Pittsburgh sports teams, travels, and my dog, end quote. Is this an accurate statement? Yes, Senator. I just remind you, you're in drove. Is this an accurate statement? Yes, Senator. Okay, well, now that you've said that, let's get to some examples. Let's talk a little bit about your, your Twitter posts then that I was asking you about. On February 18th, 2022, you posted on Twitter bemoaning the dropping of mask requirements for children, including those under the age of five. Do you remember that post? No, Senator. That, those tweets were in my personal capacity. Uh, no, 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 no. I asked you, would you give all public posts that you had made on Twitter... You said no, effectively, and you said that your Twitter posts consisted of mystery novels, events at the White House Historical Association, Pittsburgh sports teams, travels, and my dog. And you just told me now under oath that you stood by that. So now let's talk about your Twitter posts. On February 18th, 2022, you posted bemoaning the fact that mask requirements for children under the age of five, one of whom I happen to have, by the way, had been dropped. Is that a post about your dog or sports teams? My social media is in my personal capacity. Answer my question, please, because you've testified under oath that you only posted about your dog and sports teams and novels. And you also said you wouldn't give this committee any of your public posts. So is your post on February 18th, 2022, bemoaning the lifting of mask requirements for children under the age of five, who I might just ask all of the data has said is extremely harmful to children, these mask requirements. We'll leave that aside for now. Is that a post about your dog, or sports teams? Yes or no? My social media is in my personal capacity, Senator. Yes or no, Ms. Shogan. You are under oath before this committee. And I have to say, you have placed this issue squarely in record by repeatedly refusing to answer. Yes or no? My personal, my social media is in my personal capacity, Senator. Uh, Does anyone else get the irony of the nominee for National Archivist not being willing to disclose <laughs> otherwise it's publicly in available information. Account, Dan. Uh, this uh, continued, as did her responses. My social media is in my personal capacity. Do you remember the post? Capacity. My social media is in post? my personal capacity, I, I have to say, I have been here for four years in the Senate. I have never seen a witness stonewall like this before. Never. <laughs> I've seen a lot. This is extraordinary. Do you remember this post? December 3rd, 2021. My social media is in my personal capacity, Senator. I mean, this is 
unbelievable. And you want to be the archivist of the United States. You lied to us under oath. You lied to us in your QFRs. You just lied to me a second ago under oath. And now you're sitting here stonewalling, not answering questions about public posts that you've made. One last try. Dr. Shogun, I'm going to ask you again. Will you give to this committee your public posts on Twitter? Will you make them available to this My committee? social media is in my personal capacity. Mr. Chairman, I have to tell you, this is the most extraordinary thing I have seen in my brief time in the Senate. I have never seen a witness blatantly lie under oath like Dr. Shogun has just done to this committee, stonewalled this committee, and just repeatedly refused to answer my questions about her own posts that are in public. For these reasons, I will oppose your nomination, and I strongly, strongly urge this committee to take action on this and force this witness uh, to, to own up to the fact that she is, she is misleading us right now before our eyes, Mr. Chairman. Uh, well, there's more to the story, and we brought it to you last month thanks to this nice investigative piece by Lee Smith over at uh, Tablet. At the center of the Biden document cover-up, so now talking about classified documents and the National Archivist and the involvement of the National Archivist and uh, the securing of classified documents from Trump, from Biden, from Pence, from Senator Biden back then, from, you know, everybody else that would have their hands on classified documents and the disparate treatment, of course, which is what's been discussed for the last several months. At the center of that Biden document cover-up, is the question of who blocked the National Archives from informing the public about the classified documents found in Biden's office back in early November before the election. The Archives General Counsel told members of the House Committee on Oversight that he couldn't divulge that information, but GOP House leadership concluded that it could have only been Merrick Garland or Biden himself. But Lee Smith argues there's a third powerful name in play, and this one is from outside the government, David Rubinstein. He's the co-founder of the Carlyle Group, massive private, he's a billionaire, massive private equity concern. Okay. In 2013, the David Rubinstein Gallery at the National Archives was completed at a cost of $13.5 million. Rubenstein has also regularly hosted the Biden family at his Nantucket estate for Thanksgiving oh. in 2022, in 2021, back in 2014, known each other for a while. And so, again, thinking about the disparate treatment, who's calling the shots. Under recently retired chief archivist David Ferrero, the archives gladly joined forces with the Department of Justice-led anti-Trump campaign. As Trump lawyers were negotiating last winter with archives officials over which documents constituted presidential records and which were personal, Ferrero, uh, his tenure winding down, struck his final blow for the resistance, writes Lee Smith. He referred the former president to the Department of Justice for a criminal investigation that led to the FBI's August raid of Trump's Florida home. So this uh, rather otherwise obscure position of National Archivist has become a lot less obscure because of that FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, yeah. of course. But it, important to understand, as we focus on Ray and Garland, that it's the National Archivist providing political cover for what Ray and Garland authorized. Going back to David Rubenstein, 
He appears, again, this is Lee Smith's reporting, to exercise considerable influence over the staffing of senior personnel at the agency. Before Ferrero was appointed by Obama in 2009 to lead the National Archives, he was a university librarian and vice provost for library affairs at Duke for uh, almost a decade. At the same time, Rubenstein was chairman of the Duke Board of Trustees. The nominee to replace Ferrero is the woman you just heard from, Colleen Shogan. She's currently the director of the David Rubenstein Center at the White House Historical Center. Uh. So the point here is that these are chess pieces for people like David Rubenstein. You know, we talked about this yesterday, uh, Pritzker focusing on school boards and library boards the way that Soros focused on prosecutors. They're always looking at the chessboard, and these offices and people to fill these offices are chess pieces for them. Yep. So what angle, what what power does the National Archivist have? How could the National Archivist be useful to us? Well, first of all, that's a control of the official record, classified documents, who gets to write the history, if you will. It's an obscure position that has uh, a broader implications. Yeah, well, broader implications than one might think at first blush. And then secondly, when this moment occurred, where there was this back and forth between Trump's lawyers and the National Archivist, and now a recognition that the National Archivist could set in motion something that came to pass. And then when they're, uh, maybe they were surprised, maybe they weren't surprised, but they're able to spike the release of the information pre-election that there were classified documents found in Biden's office and garage and elsewhere. So, you know, you think this back and forth, this is just another left-wing apparatchik um, and it's just sort of a partisan food fight in a confirmation hearing. But it's bigger than that because, well, heck, you won't need to keep the classified documents in the Corvette in Biden's garage. Hunter can go right to Colleen Shogun and get mm. him if she's confirmed. The moving around of chess pieces, that's so perfect, Dan. I just, you know, these, these, I just, these, these um, sort of below the fold operatives in you know, shadowy bureaucracies that no one otherwise pays attention to. And this is how you learn you have to pay attention to them. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Hear about the big stories of the day. Then talk about them right here on Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Simon Moya Smith. He uh, writes for The Nation and The Cut. He lectures at the University of Colorado at Denver. He tweeted this. Before white people came to this land, there were no jo- there were no jails, no homelessness, no laws against homosexuality or abortion. For thousands of years, indigenous peoples emphasized health, housing, freedom to love who you love, and the fact we need Mother Earth. She doesn't need us. Well, that's a tidy <laughs> uh, summary of 2,000 years of Western civilization. <laughs> 
where does somebody learn these things and then go on to print them at the nation and offer them up to young skulls full of mush at the University of Colorado? Oh, he's a Columbia Journalism alum. Hmm. Yeah, private versus public at the university level and increasingly private versus public at the K-12 through level. That is not enough to distinguish those institutions that are mainly interested in turning out leftist political activists who will continue their work of denigrating America and the West. That, that's a starting point. But as our friend uh, Eric Hoffman argues in a recent piece, school choice is not enough. Eric Hoffman is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, and author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities. Professor Kaufman, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great to be here, Dan. So you're always uh, doing interesting survey research, and uh, you've done another one, um, this uh, survey of uh, young people aged 18 to 20 about the sort of uh, coursework they're being exposed to as they matriculate through K-12 through and into college. Yeah, and and so this was really in response to claims that critical race theory isn't being taught, radical gender theory isn't being taught in schools. Um, and, of course, it's very difficult to, to find out exactly what is being taught. Um, but the best way that we could think of, Zach Goldberg and I at the Manhattan Institute, is to survey people who were either just in school age 18 or just leaving age 19 and 20 and ask what they were taught. Uh, and what that showed really was that 93% had experienced, had had heard from an adult in school about a radical race or gender concept. So it's almost saturation level now in uh, American schools. I should add it's it's in almost 90% of public, well, 90% of schools in districts that are heavily Republican. So this is happening right under the nose of Republican mm. uh, politicians and parents. Right. And um, uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates would say, well, <laughs> Professor Kaufman, uh, I teach at Howard. I'm playing the role of Ta-Nehisi Coates in this uh, right. role-playing game. I teach at Howard, and I expose my students to ideas I disagree with all the time. As a black man in America, how could I not talk about writers or assign uh, authors who, with whom I disagree? So, of course, this is part of the give and take. This is part of the broadening of horizons and so forth. Uh, one book like mine or like Ibram Kendi's does not an indoctrination camp make. Right. So the first point, I guess, to, to state is that in seven out of ten cases where uh, these young people heard these concepts, those concepts were taught as fact. So they were taught either no other viewpoint was provided uh, or it was claimed that there was no other respectable viewpoint. So basically, in seven out of ten cases, these really quite radical pseudoscientific and not evidence-based ideas are being taught as truth. Yeah, that's kind of indoctrination. Um, and I think it's especially serious in the school system where kids are captive. 
it's not like you opt in as an, in, into an elective as a university. So, uh, yeah, I think this is really pretty well wholesale ideological indoctrination, especially when you consider that these theories in many cases aren't that far removed from essentially racial conspiracies. Um, essentially, the, a conspiracy of white people against black people is, is not a very far removed from um, the way these theories operate. So, yeah, I think uh, I think this is pretty serious. And, and, of course, as we show, and we'll probably get into later, uh, this indoctrination is really working. It really does change attitudes. Well, what recommendations do you have for parents to fight back? Um, well, I think it's really tough. And I, and I think one, one thing you see in the report is, you know, school choice alone is really not going to do it. I mean, it may be that if you're a very switched-on parent and you have good information about a school and everything it teaches, you know, you, maybe you can choose a school that teaches a classical curriculum if that's available to you within a reasonable distance. But in terms of the impact on American society as a whole and politics, I don't think that's going to move the needle very much. So, yes, an individual parent may be able, if they're highly informed and motivated, uh, to get their kids away from this. But I think if we want to talk about American society as a whole and dealing with the indoctrination level in society – but then we're going to have to talk, start talking about things that Governor DeSantis is talking about in Florida, which means bans on CRT and gender ideology in class, uh, much more emphasis on political impartiality uh, in teaching. Right. I mean, I know, of course, that the uh, proponents of critical theory studies, they have no interest in partisan outcomes or affiliations of students. They're not trying to do anything. But as your survey research points out, um, I'm sure they'll be stunned to learn that uh, they're having an impact uh, in terms of the partisan distribution of young people. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where I think Republican uh, politicians really need to, to wake up to the impact this is having. We've, we've now got evidence on millennials and Gen Z that they're really not uh, most, you know, the pattern in the, in the past has been people, as they get older, they gradually switch to the Republicans that doesn't seem to be happening amongst the younger cohorts now. Uh, one reason I think could be the the effective impact of this uh, indoctrination. And so if we look at, just to give an example, uh, a young person whose mother is a Republican uh, who is taught no critical race or gender concepts in school, uh, on average 61% of those uh, children, um, 18 to 20 year olds are Republican and 18% are Democrat. That's with a Republican mother and no critical race or gender uh, heard in school. Then if you go to uh, the same child, Republican mother, but heard um, the maximum of six possible uh, critical social justice concepts, that goes from 61% Republican to 30% Republican amongst those kids. So both Republican mothers the impact of that uh, exposure drops the share from 61 to 30 percent, so cuts it in half and increases the Democrat share to um, 29 percent, about even. So the impact of this on partisan uh, affiliation is, is absolutely massive. The impact also on beliefs, belief support for affirmative action, support for white guilt, um, and increases, doubles. And so Again, a massive policy issue impact. So the only way really to deal with this is going to be to tackle 
indoctrination that's occurring in schools. Now, it's also occurring in private schools. It's occurring in homeschooling, by the way. 88% are exposed. So school choice is really not going to have much impact. It's, it's worth pursuing. Uh, so I, I, I definitely think it's worth pursuing. But really to change the game, we have to, be, we have to take the school reform agenda much more seriously the way Youngkin in Virginia um, and, and DeSantis in Florida are doing. How do you distinguish between being exposed to critical theory and being imposed upon with critical theory? Because there is a distinction. I'm fine with people reading Kendi or Robin D'Angelo or Ta-Nehisi Coates or whoever. Um, and so, you know, um, but, but, but obviously that needs to be, you know, among the choices and discussion, not this is your truth received from on high, and now this is what you should believe in order to be a good person. So how do you distinguish the environment where it's presented in the latter way that I just suggested as opposed to the former? Yeah, I mean, if they were teaching, you know, Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter and, right. and Coleman Hughes and, and, and all of that alongside one for one with the critical race theory, then that would be fine. And, and, and that would turn up, by the way, in the survey data. People would say, oh, yeah, well, we heard con- competing respectable views. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm all for that, um, even though I think that the, uh, the arguments of Kendi and others are not analytically or empirically sound in any way. I still think fine, open debate, but the problem is we can't really trust currently, uh, at least in K-12, that open debate. Now, at the university level, I'm less concerned because university has less of an impact on attitudes. People can opt in and out of, of courses more easily, um, and so I think there I wouldn't wouldn't necessarily well I wouldn't be in favor of CRT bans but I think in schools until and unless we're able to get uh, some kind of uh, inspection and measurement regime for impartiality I, I think it's it's probably best to go with the CRT ban. Right, I mean, and, and just to go back to some of this additional survey data here, um, you report that those exposed to no uh, critical social justice theories critical theory. Uh, break twenty-seven twenty, Republican. Those who've been taught the maximum of eight cri- uh, critical theory courses, fifty-three to seven Dem. So I mean, you're just moving. You're, you're, you're people that come to the table. They're sort of they're they're neutral. They don't they haven't had exposure, but you're just giving them exposure from to one thing from one angle. And as as I said before, essentially saying in order to be considered a good person an ally you need to believe these things and you're just you're just moving a generation over to this side of identitarian politics well that's right yeah and and that has a whole series of implications as this becomes the next cohort of voters and eventually the median voter uh if if you're allowing the public education or the education system even in private schools so i mean this gets at teacher training programs but what that means is, you know, I take an attitude like uh, racial preferences. Uh, fav- favoring ra- racial preferences increases from 17 to 44 percent of young people as we move from those not exposed to these uh, critical social justice concepts to those exposed to the maximum of, of five concepts. So that's more than a doubling in support for things such as racial preferences or or the belief in white guilt, for example, the belief that. The United States is is a, a patriarchal society that it's built on stolen land and, and is a racist country. These sorts of things uh, expand greatly. So what that represents is 
um, you've got a threat to, to both the Enlightenment values uh, and also a threat to uh, American social cohesion and national identity. So, yeah, I think this is a, I would call it an, a cultural emergency. I and, mean, I, you know, it really has to come up the list of priorities uh, for Republicans. He is Eric Hoffman, professor of politics at Birkbeck College, University of London, author of White Shift, Populism, Immigration, and the Future. And you can uh, check out his piece that we were just pouring over. School Choice is Not Enough, the Impact of Critical Social Justice Ideology in American Education. Check that out at the Manhattan Institute. Uh, professor Kaufman, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks very much, Dan. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's news, opinion, insight. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Dan and Amy, uh, a rare quality skit from SNL. Yeah, it's still on the air. SNL over the weekend, Travis Kelsey, Kansas City Chiefs tight end, was the host. Yep, I watched the whole thing. Uh, Oh, boy, that's a sad commentary (laughs) on your life. Uh, Here's uh, the NFL giving back in a unique way. (laughs) On the field, we're athletes, but off the field, it's our job to give back, to serve the community. That's why this offseason, NFL players are using their strength for an important charitable cause, lifting women whose boyfriends can't pick them up. I got it from here, boss. Travis Kelsey? I got you, ma'am. Oh, what do you weigh, 80 pounds? <laughs> Look, I love my little boyfriend. Boyfriend. Right. <laughs> he makes me laugh a lot, and he's so creative. But sometimes I just want to be thrown around and feel tiny. Sometimes I want to be with a man who looks like he can throw my ass over a house. <laughs> babe, good news. Crypto's back. Uh-huh. That's great, babe. Again. What is Chief's lineman Creed Humphrey doing here? Volunteering. <laughs> Again. Again. I love charity. One more time. You may be eligible for our services if your boyfriend is a comedy writer, music critic, adult Legoist, loves the show Andor, has traveled to see John Mulaney, has special glasses for looking at computer, or has arms that are the same width from wrist to shoulder like Doug Funny. Ooh, my jeans are fitting good today. Those are mine. Don't worry. <laughs> I got this, big man. What's a piggyback ride? Hey. Sometimes I want to feel small. When I wear my boyfriend shirt, people are like, cute, where'd you get that top? But Jason Kelsey gave me his hoodie and... It's bigger. Because sometimes I just want to be a backpack. And sometimes I want to be a front backpack. And most times we don't want to hear your jokes. We just want to be thrown, chucked, vaulted into space. Lifted straight up from our butt cheeks, smashed into your chest. Folded like paper. And most of all, like you are an immovable, pulsating throne for our tired, weathered bodies. You lifted me up. Yeah, I've been working out. NFL gives back. is you. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. I like the riff on if your boyfriend is... A uh, Legoist, a comedy writer, has traveled to see John Mulaney. <laughs> that's, pretty, oh that's, pretty, that's pretty good. 
That's that's just nice. Nice touch. So I don't know. They got uh, at least hope. one creative writer still left at yes. SNL. Yes, it was a good show. You should watch the whole thing. It was uh, except for the opening, because of course I always rip on Fox and Trump, and that's it's getting kind of old. That's plenty. Yes. Yeah, All right. Thanks so much plenty. for making us part of your morning. Thanks to. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast, sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.